Well, as we continue on with our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, I'll ask that you turn to uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 6. This evening we're looking at verses 5 through 15. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 811. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in heaven. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you, forgive your trespasses. Again, Father, we ask that you would speak to our heart now. Reveal your truth to us. In Jesus' name. Now, before I go any further, and this might be a little unorthodox from your expectations, let me comment that this is not a sermon series. This is rather a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not topical in the technical sense of the word. It's exegetical. And so it is in that light that I want to approach this passage this evening. So from an exegetical standpoint, this is not primarily about how to pray. Yes, it is about how to pray, but it's not primarily so. It's primarily about the heart and mind that those prayers come from. In verse 5 and 7, we're given two prohibitions. Don't be like the hypocrites and don't heap up empty phrases. Now, both these prohibitions reveal improper motives and intent. In verse 5, we find the first and key prohibition, one that is centrally communicated in this entire section of chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, which is why I'm talking about exegetical and how I'm going about it. And it says, don't be a hypocrite. That is the centrality here. Don't be a hypocrite in giving. Don't be a hypocrite in fasting. And here in our passage, don't be a hypocrite when praying. The word hypocrite first pertained to actors who, were, who wore huge masks, and the mask that they wore actually communicated the part that they were playing. So they were hiding behind that mask. So hypocrites are actors, pretenders, people who act in a manner decidedly different than who they really are. And of course, they do so because they're entertaining a personal agenda. Here Jesus says the Pharisees acted the way they did. They occupied the spaces they did because they had a primary goal of being seen by others. They loved the attention, the accolades, the praise of men. 
Now, the problem with that end and that attitude is this. The central purpose of prayer is God's glory. That and communing with God. He is the object of our affection. He is the source of our provision. He is the one that is supposed to receive all glory. And the end of everything that occurs in and through it, our prayers, results in him being glorified. The Pharisees were seeking their own glory and using God's ordained means of reaching him to do so. So as is the case with God, he often lets us do or receive what it is we want. And that's what they got. It says, but that's where it ended. They received their reward, Jesus says. But it should not be so with you who truly belong to him. Instead, you go to your private place and seek God in the manner which pleases him, and he will reward you openly. Now, it's important to know here that Jesus is not speaking against public prayers. He himself prayed both in public and in private. And if one were to look at all the instances throughout Scripture, one would see that there's a plethora of instances where people are praying in public. The issue here, as I've already indicated, is the heart, the entrails of the heart, the motives, the intent. So it is in keeping with that that we hear our second prohibition communicated to us in verse 7. Do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do. Here it's as if these people think they can manipulate God into giving them what they want. They by and through the power of their many words or babbling incantations will in their deceived heart, they're thinking, turn the sovereign God of the universe into a cosmic vending machine. Listen, I used to be a member of a church and we had a miracle healing crusade. And it started with a bunch of music, loud music, and loud this and loud that. And then people would be speaking in tongues and speaking and praying loud and hard and everything else. And, it's, and I'm sitting here and I'm wondering, is all this necessary? When I look at scripture and there's supposed to be a healing, Peter said, listen, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. And he really just healed the man right there and then without fanfare because what was happening was God is what, who they should have been looking at. He was validating the fact that he was sent by God, but it was to cause them to look to God and the message of God. And so those individuals have to wonder, all this stuff that's going on here, all this loud this and loud that, and I've been to plenty of churches, by the way, where that's exactly what's going on. Is it about God or is it about self-aggrandizement? Jesus says that these people think They'll be heard on the basis of what they do, not on the basis of who God is. The omniscient, the all-knowing God who knows the end from the beginning, who knows, as the text tells us, that the Father already knows what we're going to ask before we do so. And so we're told not to be like either of these groups, not to engage in these types of practices that are in fact just as common, by the way, to us as it was to them. Listen. Over the years, I've learned this truth. God does not waste anyone's time with irreverent or irrelevant instructions. If he says don't do it, it's because it's, we are exactly prone to doing that exact thing. Because it's in our nature to do that exact thing. And so we're told not to do it. The good shepherd knows his sheep and meets them right where they are. 
at the point of their greatest need. And all of us stand in need of regular spiritual heart exams and instructions on how and how not to approach our Lord, how to please and live for him, and how to engage those who are in our sphere of influence for his glory and for his purpose. And so we have been steered, if you will. Jesus is steering them away from the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, from wearing a mask of hypocrisy, and turned from engaging in the vain practice of manipulation through the abundance of words and trying uh, to manipulate our God through chants and, and babblings and all of that such. And as is always the case with our good shepherd, we're not left on our own to figure out the how and the why and the when. It's laid out for us right here in this wonderful, simple, wonderfully simple, but profoundly deep structure we have before us. A structure or a model, pray like this, he says. So it's not the exact words that we're supposed to say. It's a model of the things that we're supposed to include in our prayer. And it says when, when you pray. So there's no specific time that we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to pray unceasingly, consistently before God, but we're not legalistically told when to pray. And again, let me remind you that my primary concern this evening is not on the how concerning prayer, but on the heart and mind behind those prayers. And this is where the three prongs of orthodoxy that you heard of come into play. Orthodoxy, meaning right doctrine, gives place or gives birth to orthopathos, the right feelings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. This then gives ways to orthopraxis, the right practice, the balm that heals our wounds of hypocrisy. This is the formula that opens our understanding. And it is when we grow in our understanding of who God truly is and what he's done for us that we uh, become gratitude-filled vessels, earnestly desiring to serve him with a pure, with pure and sincere hearts. It is then that we seek to engage his purposes and not our own. So with these thoughts in mind, my plan this evening is to hone in on the first three petitions and then briefly comment on the others, and I'm going to accomplish this this evening under three headings, God's priority, God's program, and God's plan. But first, a word about the address, our Father in heaven. Let me say right off the top that we cannot truly appreciate this prayer unless we truly understand and appreciate what Christ has done for us. John Calvin, after asserting that to call God fathers to pray in Jesus' name, goes on to ask, who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of Son of God unless we had been adopted of children of grace in Christ? Martin Luther joined Calvin in this sentiment when he communicated his belief that this address was a call for us not to plunge right into talking to God, but to rather recognize him, how we are able to do so. That is through our mediator. We have a mediator who paved the way of our approach to an infinitely holy God. He did so through the ultimate sacrifice, through his active obedience. He walked on the earth and fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law through his passive, his death 
on the cross. He did all things, everything that was necessary for us then to be reconciled to God. And it is only because of that that we can approach a thrice holy God. It is only because of that we can even understand the things that God has revealed to us. And so we come in the name of Jesus Christ. And so when we say our Father who are in heaven, right there and then we are acknowledging who Christ is, the greatness of Christ, the awesomeness of Christ, the glory of Christ, and what he has done for us. And so we come as sinners, justly deserving the wrath of God. But instead, here we are with the privilege of utilizing a term of endearment, Father, in our address to him who has made us objects of his love. You know, in the Greek, it uses a word patria, which again translates as father. But I believe when Jesus spoke here, he used the Aramaic term Abba. That's the term of endearment that he used. And so we then have that opportunity. We can now say Abba, our father. This understanding then should move us not to a disposition of self-concern. When you understand truly you know, we come to church and we go through the rituals and we go through the motions, but do we really experientially understand how separate we were from God and how unable to do anything on our own behalf? We say that, we hear it, but do we experientially grab hold of that fact? Do we? And if so, it, it should lead us to take our eyes off of ourselves and place our gaze on the God of the Bible, not the God that we hold, as J.B. Phyllis would say, your God is too small, but the God that has revealed himself to us in Scripture as holy, 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 that God. Howie, because if so, then we say, Lord, speak to my heart concerning your purpose, not mine. What would you have me to do for you? That becomes our heart's mantra instead of the hypocrisy of self-desires, self-worth, self-aggrandizement, self-seeking. It becomes about God. This is the heart then that's properly aligned towards God's supreme purpose for prayer, to glorify himself, to do so through the manifestation of his glory. Prayer is not primarily about the fulfillment of our needs. And that is factually reflected in the fact that the first three petitions we see here, the first three, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those first three petitions are all about God. And so in response to a heart of inquiry, God, we come to God then with these petitions. And in so in response to that, that heart of inquiry that we come with to God, he responds with what I've labeled as our first point. God's priority, his priority, articulated in these words, hallowed be your name. The Pharisaic heart seeks its own, but the submitted heart learns that God is to have priority in every aspect of our lives. And that prioritization starts with our approach to God in prayer. Concerning this, John MacArthur writes, praying is not to be a casual routine that gives passing homage to God. Take the mask off, but should open up great dimensions of reverence, awe, appreciation, 
honor and adoration. And so we come in full recognition of his holiness, his otherness, his perfection, readily proclaiming that which we acknowledge and have given assent to. We acknowledge the fact that his name signifies much more than his titles. It represents all that he is, his character, his plan, and his will. One scholar says it this way, it's because we simply know God's titles. It is not because we simply know God's titles that we love and trust him, but it's because we know his character. There is no greater representation of that character than that which was seen in Christ. Jesus declared it as much in John 17, 6, when he said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now as imitators of Christ, as those whom you have given me, a, as imitators of Christ, as those who are being molded and shaped into his image rather, we are called first to acknowledge him, to acknowledge his perfect holiness, to set him apart in our hearts and minds, and then to live earnestly desiring and striving as Christ did to manifest his character in the earth, praying that God would keep us from dishonoring his holy name. The God that we serve is holy, holy, holy. Again, that cannot be emphasized enough. I think of Exodus 2019. This is after God gave the Ten Commandments. First of all, he asked them in Exodus 19. He told Moses, I want to speak to my people. So go and consecrate them, set their hearts apart. So they went out and they engaged in ritual washings and ceremonial cleansings, which was indicative or symbolic of cleansing their heart before they came before a thrice holy God. And so they did, they obeyed God in what he said. And as a result of that, they were spoke, God spoke directly to them and spoke the Ten Commandments to them. And in Exodus 20, 19, after God has finished speaking the Ten Commandments to them, the holy God that showed up in thunderings and lightnings and everything else, the awesome sight. You know, we say our God is an awesome God. When he showed up like that, the people were fearful in awe. And they said, Moses, you speak to him lest we die. Fear, the book of Proverbs says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so when we get the wisdom of God is then we understand and obtain the knowledge of God and rightfully apply it. And when we do so, it is then again, because I'm talking about our heart, that our heart centrally becomes about this God. So having this mindset, the same of that which was perfectly manifested in Christ, should cause us to earnestly desire and experience the ultimate end of Christ's work, his reign as king in his kingdom. And so we pray the second petition, your kingdom come. This leads us to our second point, God's program. We live in a world fraught with pain and suffering, a world where bad can be found at every turn, and we ourselves often contribute in negative ways to the already negative things around us. In spite of this, if the truth were told, if we were to take our mask off, if we were to take our mask off, many of us would have to admit that we cannot identify with the Apostle Paul's statement 
that he would rather be away from the body and with Christ. In other words, dead and in heaven. Nope. We want to be here. We want to hold fast to that which we have here. We want to continue building our nest egg, our program, our agenda, even those things that are not in concert with God's plan or purpose for our lives. If God's plan does not match our will, then we want God to change his will, bend his will to fit ours. But God has his program. Folks, the kingdom of God is already here. His program is already in effect, not in its fullness, but substantively so. And as Christians, we are called to be about his program, not our own. Keller communicates this well, Tim Keller, quoting both Augustine and Calvin. Keller wrote, Augustine says, God is reigning now, but just as light is absent to those refusing to open their eyes, so it is possible to refuse God's rule. This is the cause of all human problems, he goes on to say. Since we were created to serve him, and when we serve other things in God's place, all spiritual, psychological, cultural, and even material problems ensue. Therefore, we need his kingdom to come. Calvin believed there were two ways a kingdom comes, God's kingdom comes. Through the spirit who corrects our desires and through the word of God which shapes our thoughts. This then is a lordship petition. It is asking God to extend his royal power over every part of our lives, our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, and commitments. In other words, make us like Christ, who was all about his father's program, even to the detriment. Christ was always all about his father's program, even to the detriment, brothers and sisters, of his own body. He was committed to the father's program and tells us we are to be the same. And how do we get there? Our final point, God's plan. It's through his plan and not our own. And so we pray the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray this, we are first praying that God's will will become our own will and not the other way around. Then secondly, secondly, we are praying that his will would prevail over the entire earth as it is in heaven. Central to this petition is the issue of trust. If you don't really believe that God can be trusted, then how can you in the midst of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, adversary, and other maladies adopt a posture that God is at work for your good? All things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. But if you don't trust God, if you don't know and understand the God as he's revealed himself to you, how then can you embrace that? I really appreciate what Keller wrote concerning this. He dealt with it by answering this question. How can we be sure God, how can we be sure the God that we pray to tonight? How can we be sure that the God that we believe and follow and walk with, how do we believe, how can we be sure this God is trustworthy? His answer, the answer is that this is the one part of the Lord's prayer Jesus himself prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Under circumstances far more crushing than any of us will ever face, 
He submitted himself to his father's will rather than following his own desires, and it saved us. His purposes were fully achieved, and that's why we can trust him. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us under circumstances or difficulty beyond our comprehension. None of us can truly comprehend the weight of the wrath of God that was placed on the shoulders of Christ on that cross. It's unfathomable to our minds. And so the bottom line is gleaned from Augustine, Calvin, and Luther. One will never experience the peace of God if one cannot from the bottom of one's heart say, your will be done. For it is only then that we are protected from despondency and bitterness, from the horrible vices of character assassination, slander, backbiting, condemning others, uh, just to name a few. You cannot bear up under those things unless you believe that all things are working together for good, unless you believe that God is with you and protecting you. You cannot bear up under those things. We cannot be a Joseph and deal with all he dealt with and continue to be faithful to God unless you believe and trust. So brothers and sisters, please note that it is only after, it is only after or when a person has the proper, when we have a proper mental orientation towards these first three petitions that they're properly, that we are properly then ready to engage the last three. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is only at that point that we are then ready. For what man who is inclined to seek his own will pray for others to receive what God has for them when it might be greater than when he has? Why am I going to pray for someone and let God's will be done when praying for that person might mean that they're going to get more than me if I want to be the man. You see, if it's about me and God is a vending machine, then that's no longer, that's, you see what I'm saying? There's a problem there, okay? And what woman will forgive based on her understanding of how much she's been forgiven of when she has either lost sight of that fact? or had no such comprehension to begin with. If she misses what's going on in our Father who art in heaven, how is she going to be able, and, and the reality and the depth of what Christ has done for her, how is she going to come down here and say, forgive my debt, my sin, as Luke said, as I forgive others? How is she going to be able to do that? How is the Spirit going to move her in that direction if she's removed from an understanding of who God is and how he's operating in and through her? How will she work out that what's been worked into her unless she has hold of these things that I am talking about? She will be left to be what we talked about in the very beginning. Act hypocritically with a mass covering and walking my people suffer for lack of knowledge, we hear sometimes. We think of Hebrews 12, 15, that says, See that no man fail of the grace of God, lest the root of bitterness crop up. And so how do you again, you notice it's the grace of God. And what is the grace of God? Where is the grace of God embodied? In the gospel. In the gospel. 
And when we come to the Lord's prayer, when we come to the disciples' prayer, as it should better uh, be called, and we come in the manner that I just said, with the mindset that I just said, with the hearts that I just talked about, then we are in a better position. We are in the position that God wants us to be in to go along with his program and his plan and his priority. And it is then that God can give us or give you a million dollars because then you'll use it for his glory and I'm looking for 800,000. So what person to go on wants to be led away from sin? It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What person wants to be led away from the sin that so easily besets them when they love that sin and its fruit more than they do God? Brothers and sisters, here is where we have to search our own hearts, where we have to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal where we are, proverbially in Hollywood, with masks that are literally screaming, hypocrite, hypocrite, it's all about you. You know, I like that song, uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, it's all about you. You know, it seems to me that songwriter got a revelation of that fact, that he had moved away from worshiping God, from serving God, from acting in God's benefit, for God's benefit and God's glory, and he probably got caught up in the accolades of people coming and worshiping him because he was a gospel singer that could move people. And he says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. Is that where we are? Do we come to church, and it's all about the thrice holy God? Do we come to church? Do we walk through the doors, and we have the mind that says, I'm not here to be entertained. I'm here to worship the true and risen Christ. I'm here to give him all honor, all glory, and all praise. Is that our heart? Is that our heart strength? You know, I have to say that the reality of the situation is, part of me says, I'm Dean, you're preaching to the choir. This is a church that for years and years and years seems to have that understanding. But brothers and sisters, Every single one of us can fail at any single time. We are the Pharisees. We are the Pharisees. We are the ones that have to examine our hearts again. We are the ones that in a moment, in a twinkling, can turn and it becomes about us and not about God. And so we should continually examine ourselves in the midst of whatever we're dealing with. And then when we do that, we say, God... Is this about you? This is about you. So lead me, guide me. Let me not lean on my own understanding. Let me acknowledge you, the thrice holy God, the all-knowing God, in all my ways, and allow you to direct my path. So when I come into your presence, I'm coming into your presence, not asking for what, I'm at, what I want for me, but asking for what I want because I believe that it's going to glorify you. I believe that you are my boss. And I walked into the job this morning and I needed a typewriter. And without the typewriter, I can't write the letters you need. And so I'm coming asking you as my boss for the typewriter. And so God knows he's not gonna give me a snake, he's gonna give me a typewriter because then I won't be able to type my message to preach. 
So everything that we ask of our Lord, our daily bread, that is the things that we need, not the things that we want to glorify him, is tied into those three. When we talk about forgiving, it's tied into the, those three and who God is and what he's done for us. And when we talk about lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one, it is tied into the fact that we trust God, that he can take care of us, that he will do what he says, that he's a faithful God, faithful to deliver us, faithful to keep us until that day. Dean, right now I'm under great conviction. Truth is, I believe I stand convicted more often than not of engaging in rote, mechanical, ostentatious, that's showy, to be shown before man prayers. To you I say, as I say to myself, all of us stand guilty before the throne of grace, but those who are his are moving from glory to glory, from one measure of growth and sanctification to another. We all stand condemned, but for the robe of righteousness that we have through Jesus Christ. We all rest then in his grace, grow in it, and move and have our being in him. And thus we hear his words and are convicted and grow therein. Interesting note. You think of the Ten Commandments and the fact that the four, first four commandments are all about God. I'm talking about the consistency in our immutable God. Here the first three are about God and the next three are about man and his neighbor. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that it's in the plural. Us, us. We are supposed to not only be concerned about ourselves, but about our neighbor, but about our fellow man. And you hear that consistently in God's word. You heard it this morning when John Quasney preached and talked about the harmony of the saints, the unity of the saints. You see it here. We're not only looking at our own, but we're looking at the interests of others, the consistent God we serve. And so in the light of the second half of this, again, being about man, a huge part of it is forgiveness, casting aside bitterness, casting aside all that. And you know how I know that? And how I know, like I said in the beginning and talked about the fact that we're dealing with the heart and the mind and the emotions and the will. Look how it closes. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. It connects itself back to verse 12. It connects itself back to the fact that we are to examine ourselves. Scripture tells us if we have anything about against our brother, go to him and be reconciled. And so you see it, the tablets of our hearts should be love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. Love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what's here before us. This is the attitude we should have before a thrice holy God. And this is the attitude that God will use for his purposes, and for his glory. And I believe that is why this church has been blessed the way it has been, because we've embodied through our imperfections this very thing. 
So now saying that, we have to be careful that we do not become prideful and become the church that says, oh, we're, we're doing good financially. We're doing this. We're doing. No, no. God is doing. To him be all praise, all glory, and all honor. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've spoken to our heart. We confess before you that we sentimentally call you Father sometimes. And in that sense, look for you to give us things as if we, as you are a vending machine. But give us insight so that we can connect. Hallowed be your name to the fact that you are loving Father, to the fact that you are God of grace. You are also a God that is holy, a God who will judge those who turn against or reject your son. May it never be that that's who we would be, but may it be that we are those that will set you apart in our heart, that would lift you up before ourselves, that we would recognize that you are God there is no other, that we would be about your kingdom. You are called us your ambassadors. May we act that way. May it be that like we would speak like Christ, not our will, as he said in the garden, not our will, but yours be done. There is absolutely no way we can live this way unless you enable us by the power of your spirit. So we cast ourselves at your feet even now, asking that you would do this thing for us, cause us to magnify you in every uh, area of our lives, cause us to see you in your glory and to seek it before our own interests. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.